I'm Jester Colchin from Nice of Bites, and you're listening to the SeaWorld Podcast. Hello, welcome to the SeaWorld Podcast with Jörg and... And I'm AJ. Hey! On the side of the table, we're... Uh, yeah. In a minute, we are going to be talking Plato Term and, and the Plato Network and all that with Thomas Cherry Holmes of Irata Online. This is a really interesting um, podcast because we get to – he takes us through the whole thing. He shows us um, like visually. And if you're not watching, if you're listening to this and not watching it on YouTube, stop doing that. Go over to YouTube now and watch it unless you're driving. Then you know, do it when you get home or something. But, and we are not saying that because we need more followers and subscribers on YouTube, but because it's really interesting and you will learn a lot by watching him. Yeah, it's a very visual podcast. He takes us through like the different intricacies of this network and why it's cool and why retro computer enthusiasts should really check it out. It's, it's, it's really a cool thing to look at. So. And I actually found out about him thanks to Google+. Plus. Really? Yeah. Hmm. I remember when you told me about it, and I didn't have any idea what it was. Yeah. So one of the few moments where Google Plus was really helpful or something. When it still existed. Well, it still does until next year. Yeah. So this is a thing to check out. There's so many things now for um, retro computing. You know, we got the the Wi-Fi modems, and people have boards off the Dead Zone, which is a board uh, in the U.S., that went down in 2000-ish, 2001 maybe, is, is back up using the exact same hardware that it was using back then. And there's probably like, like 20, 25 other boards also running. And they're more active than, than they were back in the, the 90s, you know. Um, the Q-Link Reloaded exists. Um, that is, there's, there's a hangout every Wednesday night, 8 p.m. Eastern time. Everybody out there should come on and say hello in People Connection. We because actually did an interview about that. Did you? Yeah, we did about um, Q-Link and Habitat. Neo Habitat. Habitat. Habitat is a different thing. Habitat runs on Q- a Q-Link server, but it's a separate Q-Link server. So there's actually two Q-Link servers log- right now that you can log into. There's the one that's run by um, Jazzmaz. It's the main one, Q-Link.org. Um, or Q-Link.net. Well, I don't know. I'll put links to it down there. Um, and then there's the other one, which is Habitat, which is run by, you know, Made. Um, and that one, the Q-Link section of it is really kind of barren. Nothing is really done in that because it's mainly just a framework for Habitat to run. So that's that's another one that is that is out there. It's there, There's so many things out there right now, again, that the C64 thing can do. And Play-Doh is like the granddaddy of them all. This thing existed back in, in like the seventies and kept going until what did he say? The nineties the or early two thousands or something when it was taken down. And mm, right now, I don't know. Um, at the time that we recorded the, the interview for this, um, since that time, version one has been released. Like, like an official release has been made for the C64 and Apple II and all these other things. And the 128 version, which he touches on in the, in, in the interview. Um, and now he's working on completing the Amiga version. And he actually just today um, posted on Facebook requesting 
if anybody wanted to help with porting it to Amiga to go right ahead and help. So hmm. that's coming up in a second. In the meantime, we can probably talk about some jazz. Yeah, let's talk about the FPGA set. The FPGA we have some news here. Yeah. yeah, we've talked about that a bunch. Um, they were originally planning, I, I believe, to ship in March of 2018. That didn't happen. Things got pushed back. Um, as of now, as of um, this was in mid-October, the, they sent out an email to everybody that had signed up for it saying that they've gotten the first production lot of FPGAs from the manufacturer. They're working great. They're fantastic quality. But the accessory cables were not, apparently. So they have to go get them from a new manufacturer. And so currently they are looking at release in November. Um, so that's still cool. I'm still jazzed about it. I'm still excited. Um, the price when it's available will be $75, 75 euros. I'm sorry. Um, if you've signed up with a registration beforehand, then it's that it's just sixty nine ninety five, which you know is five dollars, five euros off. Um, yeah, and it's looking like it's coming along. It's it's slow, but again, this is you know a brand new thing that's coming out, and we'll, we'll see, we'll see. Mm. Well, other news: um, Douglas Alves, he actually posted on his Facebook wall some cans of Paprium, which is this Mega Drive brawler that's promised since three years, four years, something like that, from okay. uh, Watermelon Games. And um, that that's a company that's, um, it seems, spread between USA, Hong Kong, and France. And um, I have been trying personally since I pre-ordered since two years to get any info about um, the VAT stuff, if they actually ship from France, Hong Kong, or USA. So I'm prepared. And um, I have sent them um, three support tickets. Two were never replied to. One was was told that they will get back to me and ask internally. That never happened. Then I did a call in uh, Paris, and I got a woman on the phone, and I was told I will receive a call back soon. That never happened. Then they wrote on the Facebook wall that the release will actually happen at the end of September. Now, we are one month after mm-hmm. end of September and still not there. So... um People were very skeptic when this thing is coming out. And I'm really surprised about um, this kind of not communicating to the people who who have ordered. Um, I don't know what's going on. Um, But but I was told by Douglas that he's trying to help us and um, get some info to us. um, Because... Quite some people from the staff actually pre-ordered the game. And also, our Martin Aman never got a reply from them. So, um, um, it's a bit in the question. I really hope that everything is turning out well and the game will be released soon, as the cans with soda promise. <laughs> yeah. 
at least um, a photo with cans of um, of soda is a nice idea, but I want to have the game. And we have to we have to think back that they wanted to have this monster sound thing, you know, that's yeah. like sounding all digital and stuff. And they actually fell through with the manufacturer and the people developing that. So they had to reorganize all the sound hardware. So I'm really, really um, looking forward to see what they come out with. Um, mm. Yeah, so that's really a very chaotic s story, and I hope it will end well. Yeah, um, Yeah. So I wasn't sure at the beginning if I should mention this in the podcast, uh, but since the reaction on the post were so mixed, I figured I'm not the only one, and Martin is not the only one, um, having strange, strange experiences. And I don't know why that is, if they are just too overloaded with the pre-orders or with the emails they get, or I, I have no idea. Um, but I wish them well, and hopefully maybe somebody is listening to that. And um, if you do, you can write to us at podcast at sceneworld.org. Um, mm -hmm. And if you write to podcast at sceneworld.org, AJ and I will read that. And mm -hmm. then maybe we can get some info from that because yeah. I, I'm not I'm not really a fan of um, rumors and HA neither. We want we would like to know what's what's going on. Um, that is also the reason why we invited people like the Italian Commodore guys, which are, because we want to get behind things. Right, and yeah. um, if you are interested in being interviewed, maybe once once the prowler. Of Peprium is out, let us know and let's talk about that. Right, uh, yeah, absolutely. Yeah. So, podcast at sceneworld.org. I really would like to talk to you guys. Um, yeah. And let's let's stick, let's stick with cartridge releases and games. Um, there, there was this un, Unholy Night game that was released last year. We mentioned it also in this interview later. Right. And um, there was the Super NT from Analog that was released um, around about the same time. And um, I sent them a bug report um, because the the game actually would have disappeared sprites. So you couldn't play the game anymore. And a few minutes later, it would crash. And I actually figured by doing a firmware update that half a year later, they actually found the problem and fixed it. So um, this is quite interesting because people were really upset about it because the device costs $150, no, sorry, $189. And um, they actually have an exclusive Terrican Director's Cut release in it. And that's the whole reason for most people to buy the device because they want to have the game... Um, experience because back right, in right. the day memory wasn't big enough in super nas cartridges that you could release the game that they had to strap it down to actually make it fit in the cartridge limitation they had um uh, so i have to say um kudos to them to release a fix for unholy night because 
most people that do re-releases of cartridges, even if they are FPGA-based, the statement is always like, we will only support already released games during the golden times, no homebrew, no new released games, nothing. And we have to take into account that this Unholy Night um, beat-em-up game was the first officially commercially released for the Super Nintendo after 18 years of nothing. <laughs> so my reaction was, uh, my, my expectation was that Analog would, would send me a quick reply saying, we are not working on that. But instead they wrote, they wrote to me, um, we are working right now on finding the reason and a solution. It took them half a year, but they didn't give up on it. So um, it feels like for $189, you get premium game support. And, okay. Um, I don't know if um, if that, of course, rectally, um, um, well, if, of course, that gives the value of the high price. If you can say, okay, at least they have a good support. Um, but I have to say, I would rather pay a bit more and have and know that my problem is fixed at some point in the future than devices that are cheaper, but you will know that your new game will never work on it. Yeah. <laughs> so right. I don't know what your opinion is on that, but I found it very interesting that they were so supportive of um, this new SNES game. Do you agree that... Um, Manufacturers of retro consoles should concentrate on the games that are already out there and say, okay, anything homebrewed we don't bother with because it's so much um, to work on? Or do you say if, if, if a device is good, it has to support every single game that the original hardware can support too? It should support everything that it can. Um, things like, like with the, C64, the C64 Mini. Right, uh, the games that should be included with it, I would say, probably commercial because that's what people are going to know. But if you want to take a game that is homebrew and throw it on a car on a on a USB stick and put it in there, it should work with it. It shouldn't be, you know, faulty. Yeah, but but if you use hardware like the Retron Five or whatever, then your homebrew games will most likely crash. Why is that? I don't know. It's it's something that I mean. I do, I don't own this device, so I I can't so really that, say why. Because you would think if it's an emulation layer, then anything that would run on original hardware should run on it at least you know partially. Mm. I don't know. I don't know. Um, but it seems to be that some um, homebrew games are doing things differently than original games. Mm. As like I said, Unholy Night crashed. Yeah. Um and and it's and it's surprising for me that a Super Nintendo especially here in Germany it was more sold than Sega in generally too. I mean um Nintendo was just more successful with it. Oh yeah. Which is it also the everywhere. consequences where Sega left the console console industry and the console market um and just is a publisher now for games. Anyway, um, Blast processing couldn't save them. Yeah, <laughs> which was a marketing thing, as everybody knows nowadays. As uh, anyway, anyway, the thing is, 
it it is surprising for me that it took 18 years to make a new commercial game. Yeah. Well. Yeah. Because for NAS, for the Mega Drive, you have constantly new commercial games. Constantly. Do you still? Yeah. Search on Kickstarter. Hmm. Enough. Search on other pages. <clears throat> there are plenty of um, new games for the NES and Mega Drive. Okay. You know, just like Paprium, for example. Mm-hmm. And um, Watermelon is doing a lot of games for okay. the Mega Drive and Super Nintendo. Um, but, well, but, but this um, Unholy Night is special because the, it was distributed by Amazon. And Amazon was totally not prepared for the amount of orders they got for the game. <laughs> I had to wait weeks till it was even shipped. Right. So, anyway, yeah, other news. Um, I've got one here from, um, okay, so we've talked in the past to Dave Lowe. Sure. Um, And one of the things that they kind of briefly touched on was the idea of making a movie, which they have now done. Um, Recently, mid-October, a letter went out to backers um, requesting information so they, they things could be shipped out, you know, the actual movies. Um, so the Uncle Art movie uh, is, or Uncle Art the film, rather, by Lucy Lowe, is done and is getting ready to be sent out. Right. I filled the survey, too, and so I'm I. really looking forward to that. Yeah. So, yeah. Nice. Um, got well, anything else? So, so we got more news than I thought we had. You know what's amazing is the fact that even now in 2018, we do this podcast maybe once or twice a month, depending on you know on things, um, and yet we still have stuff to talk about every single time we do it. Hmm. I don't think so there's ever news. been. A, I don't think there's ever been a time when we've been when we've done this intro and just been like nothing happened. No, never. Which is kind of uh, kind of amazing that things are still going now, and there's still so much activity every time, every month. Yeah, to talk which about. is also the reason why I started Scene World. I couldn't believe what everybody told me in Europe that in America there's no activity whatsoever. It's not even worth it to talk about or think about it. Hmm. Yeah, there's and, a lot of stuff happening in America. It's, yeah. And we have proven people wrong, and I'm always happy when that happens. Yeah. Um, right. Well, we've got Thomas Cherry Holmes over the... He's, he's, he's somewhere. We'll bring him in in a second, and we'll get into the intricacies and the coolness of Plato. So Right. Enjoy. So, we are talking with Thomas Cherry Holmes about... I read it online and the whole Plato um, kind of experience that, that, that you've put together with this. Um, welcome to the podcast. Thank you very much. I'm glad to be here. So um, Actually, interesting just... is um, how I found you. I found you through your Google, Google Plus page, actually. Yeah, I've been promoting pretty much nonstop on Google Plus and on Facebook, trying to get the word out about this uh, particular service, so... 
good. And now Google Plus is no more. Yeah, irony. <laughs> so, um, maybe I guess uh, give uh, a little bit of history on the whole Plato service because there might some people might not know what that is. Like I had no idea until I actually you know checked this out. I had no idea what it was. Okay, well I guess I can um, I guess I can start here just kind of give by giving a small uh, overview of what Errata Online is and uh, then take and start diving into the Plato history from that point if that's okay. Uh-huh. Sure. Okay. Uh, so um, Errata Online is um, of course other than basically being Atari backwards. Um, it is a rather unique online service that I am providing for the entirety of the retro computing community. And when I literally mean the entirety of the retro computing community, I mean the entirety of the retro computing community, not just Commodore 64 users, but uh, Atari 8-bit users, Apple II, Apple II GS, um, uh, I mean, all the way up through Atari ST, Amiga, there's an MS-DOS terminal, etc., and just on and on. And um, the idea here is to provide a place for all of these vintage machines to be able to connect up together and to not only be able to communicate with each other, but to also take and use the built-in development environment inside the system to create new and compelling content for every one of these systems that has a terminal for it to be able to use. Now, Errata Online itself is built on top of um, Plato. Plato was a legendary time-sharing system that was developed by the University of Illinois at Urbana-Champaign. Uh, starting in the night, starting in 1960, going online in 1962, and pretty much existing in one form or another until NovaNet shut down the classic service in 2015. Mm. Uh, so that's uh, that's a few decades worth of pretty much constant use. Uh, so this particular service was very unique in a number of different ways, uh, starting with, for example, the display technology. Um, Plato wanted to be able to provide compelling, uh, they, they understood in order to provide an effective um, educational experience, I mean, just so that, just to provide some context, Plato stands for Programmed Logic for Automated Teaching Operations. So as you might infer from the name, this is intended for, uh, this was originally intended for educational purposes. And in order to facilitate that, they understood, even from that point in the early 1960s, that they would need to be able to provide uh, something a lot better than your typical teletype that was being used at the time. And what that meant for them was a full-screen graphical display. It meant a, an, an interactive keyboard uh, that was extremely responsive to system input. And it also meant, uh, as, we, as we'll go into later in just a few moments, essentially a touchscreen display to facilitate uh, selections. Uh, yes, they were thinking about touchscreens in the mid-1960s. So, um, in order to do this, they had a problem that they had to solve. Memory at the time cost $2 a bit. Think about that for a moment. $2 a bit. And you're wanting to take and provide a graphical display. That means you're either going to have to provide a calligraphic display or you're going to have to have enough memory for a bitmap. 
Well, they understood the the uh, the power of having a, a bitmap display because they understood that not everything could be able to be dis to be drawn using calligraphic or vector displays. So, uh, what would it, what would what would a normal engineer do? Well, they say, well, we can't do it. Well, these guys were not normal engineers. They uh, they set about creating an entirely new display technology to support what they wanted to be able to do. And what ultimately came from that was the gas plasma panel. If that sounds familiar, that's literally because uh, gas plasma panels up until very recently were very common in television displays. And yes, it's exactly the same technology. It was literally designed to facilitate the display, the display needs of the Plato project. Hmm. And the reason that the gas plasma display worked was because uh, gas plasma displays have their own inherent memory. You set a pixel on a gas plasma display, you don't have to refresh it. It stays on until you turn it off. So uh, in one swoop, they solved their uh, graphic display problem and the memory problem all at once. These displays also had touch screens. So you could take and uh, point to objects on the screen and use them for selections. Uh, and that's just from the hardware side of it. Uh, the, from the software side, there were a number of in, in, incredible innovations. Uh, one of the very first threaded discussion systems that was ever implemented for a time-sharing system, uh, Notes, uh, came about on Plato. And if the name Notes sounds familiar, that's because uh, the creator of Lotus Notes, uh, the, direct, the software director for Lotus Notes, Ray Ozzy, was a systems programmer on Plato. Um, early multiplayer games, uh, lots of early multiplayer game ideas uh, made their debut on Plato. Uh, if you're familiar with the classic Apple II game Wizardry, for example, uh, Wizardry actually took its cues from a game on Plato called Avatar, mm. which also was a first-person dungeon crawler. And there are a few other types. Of, there are a few other dungeon crawlers of the same type on uh, on Plato as well. They're on. They're available on Urata, and they're available on other Plato systems that are running as well. Uh, ah. another, yeah. Uh, another fantastic example is Air Fight. Um, if you played uh, Microsoft Flight Simulator or Flight Simulator 2 uh, from Sublogic. Uh, you'll find that uh, Bruce Artwick took a lot of his cues from um, from the air, from the air fight program that was on Plato, uh, which was yeah. I mean, literally, it's a it's a 3D first person flight simulator running on the system. This is in the mid 1970s. It's interesting that you mention Bizarty because actually in December I have an appointment to have an interview with Brenda Romero. Who actually invented Visardi? Um, who, who designed Visardi? So yes. this is interesting information that I have to keep in mind for December. <laughs> yes, <laughs> she, will have a lot, she will have a lot to say about uh, about Plato because Wizardry lifted uh, lifted the entire idea from for how it functions from from uh, Avatar on Plato. Nice, nice. Thank you. So now I know a question to ask her. We actually often have that cross-references mm -hmm. in interviews. This is another one. Um, yes. and, and you also mentioned Bruce Artwick. 
Um, yes. Unfortunately, I tried many times to talk to him, but he denies any invite for interviews. He doesn't want to talk to anybody. No, he, yeah, he's very he's very hard to get a hold of because he's given this interview over and over, right, over right. again for over many decades at this point. So that's completely understandable. Uh, and there are many other games that are available on the system as well. And to tie back into uh, to tie back into the rest of the system here. Um, Virtually everything on the system is written in a language called Tudor. And you can think of Tudor as sort of something that looks like a cross between BASIC and Python and Fortran, that sort of type, that sort of thing. And any user on, any user on Errata can get an author account and actually take and create new content, uh, new, new programs for others to use on the systems, new games, new ideas, whatever. And at least from, from my perspective here, for, for what I do, my, my job is to basically take and help facilitate these new ideas, these ideas that people have and try to take and make them come to life on errata, so to speak. So, I mean, uh, so you, in addition to the multiplayer games, you have, uh, the, the, all the notes files for, for collaboration. You've got, uh, multi, uh, multi-user chat functionality. And uh, you also have a lot of other crazy ideas and features that uh, wouldn't make it into mainstream communication for quite some time. Uh, for example, a simple one, uh, Term Talk, which is basically uh, a direct analog to uh, something like AOL Instant Messenger, uh, showed up on uh, Plato in the mid-1970s, as well as a feature uh, inside of Term Talk. Uh, basically that allows you to share your screen with another user so that you can take and uh, go back and forth and collaborate uh, either either for tutorial purposes or to help work on a particular project together. And not only that, but the screen sharing functionality can also actually be extended uh, using conferencing to as many as 300 simultaneous users uh, viewing the same presentation with the ability to take and pass the baton back and forth between the different users. So, wow, um, 300, you said. Yeah. Skype yeah. only allows 128 in yes. a video call at once. Yeah, and, <laughs> and this is all happening at like like 1,200 baud, too. This isn't this even, is, you yeah. know. Yes, this is all happening. The, the Plato service was designed to run, uh, to, to be exactly specific, uh, Plato used a special, uh, a special modem that operated at 1,260 bits per second for their own terminals. But it was nominally designed, yes, to run at approximately about 1,200 bits per second. So, yeah, um, uh, using a combination of very efficient protocol design for things like line and dot drawing to essentially using redefinable character sets, uh, they're able to actually take and get a lot done in those 1,200 bits per second. Mm -hmm. Man, that's that's really impressive, especially if you consider that later machines, let's for, let's say for example arcade machines mm -hmm. like Daytona and so on, use really simple, stupid protocols like Token Ring. Yes. And you know, Token Ring is like every machine would say, "I'm here, I'm here, I'm here, I'm here, I'm here," and waiting for the for the other machines say, "Yes, I hear you, I hear you." So, so it's pretty impressive to see that we kind of went backwards. In yes. the development in the later years, um, yes. after that system, when um, a more efficient network protocol was already invented. Um, so, so now we spoke a lot about what it is. 
So now interesting for me would be how did it start for you? Did it start the usual way, like uh, first of all getting a computer and playing games on it, like for most of the other users? Oh, you're talking about just for for me from a historical perspective. Um, yeah, sure. Okay. Uh, well, for me, I've been pretty much I've been programming and I've been both programming and using computers pretty much my entire life. Um, you know, when I was born, uh, my father already had several computers in the house, uh, including you know an MSI 8080, a TRS-80 Model One, and he would get an Atari 800 later which would eventually become my first machine of my own. And that was the machine that I ultimately learned uh, learned how to program on starting in BASIC. I was writing programs in BASIC by the time I was three, and by the time I was five, I was doing 6502 Assembler and just wow. kind of worked my way up and it just kept messing around with the different machines. And from from that particular point, uh, as my father and I would get more other machines, we would take, and I would do the same thing. I would take and pull them apart, understand how they worked, write software on them, and just keep repeating up through the years. And I uh, gained a lot of experience on a lot of uh, on a lot of different uh, hardware platforms, which has. Uh, oddly enough, come back, you know, all of that stuff that I've had stuffed in the back of my head has now come into play when porting all of these terminals to all of these different machines. Wow. So, um, as far as to move forward a little bit for the, um, for, for the reason why I'm, why I'm doing this particular project, um, sometime in, Sometime in the uh, middle of 2004, uh, some Plato expatriates uh, got a copy of the last official running system, uh, Plato system, that was running for commercial purposes that Control Data Corporation had set up for the Federal Aviation Administration. And they used that as a basis for setting up, a, uh, setting up their own system, which... Uh, You'll see this as the uh, CyberOne.org people. And in fact, if you go to their website, CyberOne.org, you'll find that this particular instance is still running. It's a very large Plato system. There are approximately about 15,000 lessons uh, sitting there and then running on uh, on CyberOne.org. Uh, and they have provided what is essentially uh, a sort of uh, reunion haven for all of these people that used to use Plato and wanted to use a, a classic authoring experience. So when you get an account on CyberOne.org, you essentially get um, an author mode account, which means when you log in, it drops you into the uh, development environment and says, here you go. And um, if you don't know what lesson names or things that you're going after, you're kind of going to be lost unless you read their documentation. So um, fast forward a little bit, and the uh, in 2015, uh, the One people got permission from the copyright holders of the people that currently hold the copyright for the Plato lessons and all of the result, you know, all of the uh, associated system software, and got them to say, well, can we make a distribution? for those few crazy people that might want to set up a Plato system for themselves so that they can understand how it works, that sort of thing. 
And, and got, you are one of the crazy people. Yes, I'm one of the crazy people. Okay. And, and um, so they got permission. It took them roughly about a year, year and a half to actually get everything through. Uh, but through the work of uh, some of the systems guys like Paul Koning and Tom Hunter, uh, working with the copyright holder Nat Canning, uh, Nat Cannon over at V Campus, they were able to take and put together a complete Plato system that could be bundled with uh, the DT Cyber Emulator, and uh, and make a system that could connect out, accept connections in, and run a fully functional Plato system. I uh, uh, fast forward a little bit to the uh, middle of 2017. And I had just finished reading a fantastic book on the uh, on the history of Plato called The Friendly Orange Glow. Uh, it's written by a guy named Brian Deere. It took him roughly about a decade to write this book. And it is a complete, comprehensive tome on the uh, on the complete historical context of Plato, why it came to be. Wow the factors that made it happen, uh, and the challenges that they faced, and finally ending with a, um, a person-to-person retrospective of all of, of various luminary figures that used the system and what they did with it and how it affected their lives. And upon reading this, while I was a, an, a Plato user back in the day, I actually was one of a, you know, I was actually one of a, a handful of people, relatively, that actually had um, a subscription to uh, the HomeLink service that uh, Control Data provided, uh, which was very similar to, um, very similar to, say, you've got a CompuServe or the Source account, uh, very, you know, very similar to, in that respect. You would right. get an account from them. You would have to have a, a terminal program to be able to access the service. In my case, it was the Atari Plato cartridge that Atari had developed for the Atari 800 computer, and you would pay an hourly charge, uh, you know, six dollars an hour, plus you would pay charges for uh, various different things that you used, and you know, other charges attached to it, which was one of the reasons why it wasn't very popular. Six dollars an hour, good. Yes. Oh, no. That's, <laughs> That was kind of the norm back then, especially online services in the, um, in the, from the mid 80s all the way up through the mid 90s were very much hourly. You, you paid hourly for these things. Well, I know QLink and America Online afterwards was like eight cents a minute. And I don't, I don't know what that comes out to per hour. That would be yeah. eight cents. Eight times 60 would be. About, about five bucks. Yeah, about five bucks. It's, it's, um, it's, it's, it's yeah, not so much different. And, and the, the, the main reason for that was literally because um, these were running on large time-shared on, on large time-shared systems, and you were paying uh, for the resources that you used while while, while you were on the system. Right. And, uh, and you had you had to keep the bean counters happy. And I'll take this. <laughs> You know, I'll take a small aside here and kind of give a little bit about the the hardware that the the virtual hardware that this thing is running on. Um, Errata is running on a um, uh, it is running on standard PC hardware and it's running an emulator. But the machine that this thing is emulating is absolutely is to most people's ears today would sound utterly bizarre. Uh, 
<laughs> and I won't miss, and I'm not being hyperbolic when I'm, when I literally say that I am emulating a late 1970s supercomputer. Um, yeah. It's, uh, if you're familiar with, if you're familiar with the work of, uh, Seymour Cray mm -hmm. and the Cray supercomputers that he built, um, before he was, before he founded Cray Research, he was uh, the principal scientist for controlled data, the principal computer designer for controlled data, and he developed a series of machines for them that were extremely high performance. And the last one that he developed for them before he left, the last machine that shipped that he developed for them before he left, was a machine called the um, uh, Control Data 7600. Um, and the machine that I'm running right now is actually a descendant of the Control Data 7600 called the Cyber 170-865. This is a machine that has uh, 60 bits, that's 60-bit wide RAM and registers. Uh, it has uh, up to two central processors and 24 peripheral processors, which handle all of the I.O. inside the system. And the various programs and whatnot run as a combination of uh, as a, on a combination of these processors, distributing their load across both the central processors and the I/O processors. It has approximately one megawatt of memory, which, if you take and multiply that out back down into bytes, that's approximately sixty six. You know, that's that's approximately uh, 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 almost eight almost eight megabytes worth of RAM uh, that's used for central RAM storage. And um, the machines can actually be uh, the machines can actually be clustered together. You can have up to two of them connected together horizontally to take and distribute processing power across. And you can add, you know, up to two processors in each. So it can scale all, scale out a little bit. And from that point on you have up to you know, let's say anywhere from 24 to 48 uh, disk platter drives, each of those disk platter drives, you know, holding approximately 524 megabytes worth of space. I'm converting these figures in my head because the, <laughs> the, 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 the space measurement is not an 8-bit byte, but uh, is actually 6-bit uh, binary coded decimal. So it makes, yeah, it, it makes things... Uh, makes things interesting to say the least. So yeah, as you can see, um, it, I'm emulating some rather exotic hardware. Yeah, it's, um, it, it, it's rather interesting. And the irony about all of this is that the, with the order of magnitude in which computing power has increased over the last few decades, I am running this emulated supercomputer on the teeniest, tiniest corner of a server here in my lab. Right. It's running on a single core in my lab. Mm -hmm. So should we have a look at it? I guess you can screen share and yeah. I guess you would show it from the emulator. So I guess we can start here. Let's start from the point of view of the website. Sure. Yeah. Uh, yep, let me pull. I've got monitors everywhere. I've got to pull stuff over. Hold on. All right. No problem. No problem. I have three monitors myself, so I know yeah. how it is. Okay. So um, if we go over... Tirada Online, we will see here a nice little splash here, a community for retro computing enthusiasts, along with a nice big pink sign-up button, which we'll get back to in just a moment. Um, 
if we see here, we see some of the latest news here. Uh, you'll actually see right here that we've uh, that a, an Arata user has managed to get uh, uh, the ZX Spectrum version of the terminal running on his uh, ZX Spectrum Plus Two here, and you can see it running right there. Nice. Uh, That's one of the cool things about this too is that it's not. We've seen a lot of things like, um, you know, Quantum Link is currently running for the C64, and, but it's okay. C64 only, whereas this is pretty much everything we'll, yes. this will, you know, work with. Yeah, absolutely. I guess except Game Boy or something. Well, give it time. Yeah, give it a, give it a, Is there an Amiga <laughs> port for it yet? I'm working on it. Okay, because that is one I would love to see. Yes, I'm working on it. And here's the, you know, there's an MS-DOS port here, too, that supports every video mode under the sun. And I even did a port for the PC Junior. So, um, wow. yeah, of course, check the, if you're, if you're looking for more news about this, there's an Errata Online Facebook page there. Check that, because that's, that's where I post, because I, I, you know, I, I can't post in 18 places at once, even though I try. Okay. So, um, yeah, of course, we need, testers for all sorts of stuff, a little bit about it, which we've already kind of gone over, feature set, which we've already kind of gone over, and then we come down to requirements. Uh, and as far as requirements are concerned, if you've got a PC, Mac, or a Linux-based machine, you can use the P -term, version of P-Term that's available for Windows, Mac, and Linux, which comes from CyberOne.org. And I even made a uh, made a build for Raspberry Pi users as well, so they can use them as well. And as a matter of fact, I've got a machine over here in the corner, that's that I built a, a little custom flat screen display that um, that runs as a small Plato terminal. So, um, if you have a vintage computer, and this is where it gets interesting, now you get to see all of the different machines that we kind of support here, all 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 down that we've already got builds for, and the stuff that's coming. And you can, as you start to see, I'm I'm actually trying to target everything that I can, everything that I can get a tool chain for. And wow. Spectre Video SBI 318. When was the last time you heard about that guy? I don't think I've ever heard of that guy. Uh, <laughs> it's the. Are you familiar with MSX? Yes. Yes. Okay. So the, this guy was the prototype for the MSX. Oh, okay. And Memotech MTX512, similar machine. Uh, it, your Australian users will undoubtedly know what a micro B is. Uh, that sort of thing. So uh, Taytung Einstein. And finally, once you get a terminal set up and everything, you can connect. It shows you where to connect, gives you the port information. And I even provide a guest sign-on, so you don't have to, if you just want to try it out before you get an account, you can use guest and guest to type and log in uh, and view it from there. Screenshots. And I'm constantly, I'm constantly taking and adding videos to this library here, which show off various features of the system, that sort of thing. And there's a... Uh, there's a complete demonstration video here, uh, which kind of gives a full overview of the system. And finally, we get down here to the tech section. And the tech section has a lot of interesting stuff inside of here, including a complete uh, protocol description from top to bottom of the protocol that's used on this service. Everything that you need if you were going to take and write a terminal from scratch. All that means that means if if a coder wants to um well to convert the system on another computer that you don't support yet they can they can and then, and 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 in fact thanks to the fact that I've written Plato term they can attack that from several different directions 
So if they wanted to do everything from scratch, they've got the protocol documentation right here. And then you've got example terminal code. I've got multiple examples of working terminals for different machines. And I actually need to add a few more here uh, for, for more, which some of these point to GitHub for various different terminals. Um, all of the ones that I'm currently writing right now actually derive from the version that Steve Peltz wrote for the classic Macintosh here. So you get to see, uh, you know, this, you have lots of examples here. And then you get down, we even have the source code to uh, what's called the MicroTutor interpreter uh, that was provided by the Cyber One people here. And MicroTutor is rather interesting because normally when you write a piece of tutor software, it runs on the Play-Doh host itself. Uh, they, they also created a method to do local code execution by running a microtutor interpreter on your local machine and streaming code and data back and forth between the local machine and the host. So uh, that opens up a whole bunch of other possibilities that could possibly happen in the future, such as arcade-style games and whatnot that use Play-Doh as their communication layer, that sort of thing. Hmm. So all that's there. And then, of course, if you're wanting to take and write software, I take and provide the two main uh, the two main books that teach the tutor language from top to bottom, in addition to all the tutorials and bits and pieces that are there. So from that, we come back up here, say, okay, this is awesome. I've tried the guest account here. Let's sign up. This is all you have to do to sign up. Provide your full name, email, the sign-on that you want, and the group that you want to be in. Now, uh, the the group name is merely just a uh, is is just a grouping of users. It doesn't block or change things in the system in any any uh, uh, any sort of blocking way here. So you basically just pick a group, and you know you're you're now part of that group. And uh, no, before anybody asks, I only allow one user in one group. Uh, so uh, if you have multiple machines that you love, you're going to have to pick a favorite son. Sorry. <laughs> so, okay, great. So, you know, you sign up, pick a name, pick a group. And if you want to be able to do your own coding on top of the system here, you can take and, uh, and get an author sign on. Great. Once I, will, I will attest to the, the speed at which this is done because I signed up for an account a couple of months ago and I, I think I was verified within like 24 hours. I mean, it's, you know, it's, it's like that. Yeah, I, I try to get, I try to get uh, these provisioned as well, as well as I can. And hopefully if we get more people that are interested in being system staff, we can take and get that done even faster. Mm. Nice. So. Uh, that's that's the other thing too. Um, I have an open door policy. If anybody wants to help on any part of this system, just hit me up and say, "Hey, do I'm you gonna... have any helpers right now, or are you doing this all on your own?" I'm doing all of this on my own. Most, we're almost all of it on my own. And that I is that is what I assumed. Yeah. So yeah, here it gets interesting. Yeah, but uh, I, I I'm I'm having to I'm having to really be smart about how I manage my time. So uh, you know, I bet. So let's say, for example, we'll start off here and go into, um, we'll actually go into, let me, let me show this guy real quick because he's open, and I will bring him back up over here. Okay. 
Now, when you take and set up P-Term, for example, you can create a new profile for Irata online. And in fact, the sign-up instructions in, uh, pretty much suggest that you do this. And as part of this, you take and set your default host, you set your default port to 8005, like it says in the connections there. And once you do that, um, you can then take and log on to the system. So we'll go ahead and zoom in there. Nice. Matter of fact, let me take and uh, zoom this out a little bit more. And we will log in. So you'll go ahead and either use guest or log in with the account that you were provisioned with, remembering, of course, to type in your name and group when it asks you. And you type and you type in your password. Now you'll notice that as I typed in my password here, it put out a random number of X's. I I did notice that, and that messed me up the first time I did it because I thought I was I thought it was picking up the uh, yeah. the, the keys too many times. Yeah, now this is actually, this is a security feature because you have to remember that this was being used in public places and people could potentially be looking over the shoulders, so they wanted to try and protect from that as much as they could. Well, anyway, if you configure like wireless, wireless LAN passwords in your router, they are using the same system nowadays, so. Yes, exactly. And these guys were doing it in the mid 1970s again. Reinventing the wheel. Reinventing um, all the time. Now, one of the things that you'll notice here, because I logged in with my, because I logged in with my account here, it put me back in the last menu that I was in when I logged off. In this mm -hmm. case, it put me in the notes menu here. Um, so we'll take and actually use the navigation over here that we kind of see for uh, different keys to take and go back. Now, when you're first starting out, it's a good idea. To go into the help menu and open up uh, P-Term keyboard, or if you're using a copy of Plato Term, to look at the documentation that I provide, which shows you the keys to map out. Yeah, so, that is a huge thing because there is a bit of a learning curve, which which I discovered because since these were you know machines back in the the 70s and, and 80s, there wasn't really a a standardized keyboard thing. So you had things like like a next key and a data key and all this stuff and and so you know i log into it for the first time and it's like hit the data key and it's like what the hell is the data key well and that's, you know mm -hmm. and for people that are using the system now what they actually what cyber one actually established as a standard was to use mnemonic key associations so right. the data key is controlled d uh the back key is controlled b etc mm -hmm. so those those become easy enough to remember once you've used them a couple of times yeah. And what's a fur key? Huh? What's a fun key or something? Uh, well, fun function keys. Now, if you look, ah, the function keys. Okay. Yeah, key. uh, yeah, not very fun, but a function. Key. <laughs> um, yeah, I, I didn't make the connection there. The, sorry, I didn't make the connection there. So these keys right here in the middle were actually the keys that were used in the original IBM PC version of the terminal. So when ah, I see. When I see when I say PC in this case, I mean IBM fifty one fifty PC. So, uh, yeah, they use the they use the left hand function keys for all of their for all of their various keys here. So if we go ahead now, you'll see that Shift back takes us back to the main menu. So I'll take and hit Shift Control B, and we come back to the main menu here, and you'll see that we have uh, here. Uh, just from how, just from the, the, from the first few screens that have come up, you can see that we've gone 
way beyond VT100 and ANSI here. Oh yeah. Um, this is a this is a graphical display that is sent over as a series of line and dot drawing and character set commands, which produces this screen here, um, which is which for the main menus on Errata is kind of divided up into a few consistent sections. Name of the menu, a little status bar up over here that you can see that gets updated consistently. Uh, the menu options over here on the left-hand side, a little uh, area to show uh, the keys, the, the navigation key that you can press. And you'll actually see as you go through the system, uh, the system will try to go out of its way to tell you which keys you can press to navigate throughout the system. Mm -hmm. Like so, catalog, games, and so on. Yeah. Yes. And uh, now down here at the bottom, we kind of have a global menu bar that I put down here to uh, for functions that you can use across all of the different that you can use across the the menu system here. Now it's worth noting that I actually took this was this is yet another tutor program that I wrote to support this system. This is a special type of program called a router, which is used so that. Uh, students and instructors can take and, and navigate through the system. And I built this particular router to make it easier to use than the standard authoring system to navigate through the system. Uh, down here on the bottom, you'll see that we have a nice little logo here. And you might be thinking, why does it say candy here? Well, initially, the logos were going to be uh, the logos were going to be shown, depending on which group that you were in, it was going to show the logo for that group down here. But when I got done drawing all of these logos, I was so proud of what I had drawn, I wanted everybody to see them. That makes sense. That makes yeah. sense. Uh, and you can see right there a nice little Apple logo here. Uh, this was actually drawn using the built-in graphics package that's actually built into uh, that's actually built into the system here that you can use navigating the touchscreen to take and draw and draw points, that sort of thing. And you'll notice here that the Apple logo is actually rendered using correct colors. Yes. There's a reason for this. Um, control data in what could possibly be considered the greatest stroke of foresight or dumb luck you choose. Um, specified a color model. That was 24 bits RGB. Impressive for that time. In the early 1980s, before there was a computer on planet Earth capable of displaying it. <laughs> so, <laughs> like I said, you know, foresight, I mean, you decide. So, I mean, various different logos, and, you know. So, you can, of course, press a letter to take and select each of the different items on the menu here, but um, you'll see that uh, my mouse cursor here has changed to a finger to indicate that the touchscreen is active here. And you can use the touchscreen to go to, uh, to go to different parts of the system. And I take and select uh, the catalogs, for example. Now you'll see here, this is the official Cybus catalog of published courseware. And this, these are all the bits of courseware that control data would offer to institutional customers that bought a, an or, or, large organizations that bought a copy of Central Plato from control data. There are about 16,000 lessons buried inside this catalog for everything from high school biology to, and pardon my French, I shit you not, 
how to operate a nuclear reactor. <laughs> Amazing. <laughs> Amazing. <laughs> Don't believe me? Let's go look. Uh, let's take a filter by subjects, and let's just type in nuclear. Now, these are the, now that we've done that, we kind of see a drill down uh, from a top level here of different, uh, different uh, subjects that we can drill down into. Nuclear waste treatment, nuclear magnetic resonance spectroscopy, da -da 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 -da, and all the way down to number six, reactor operators. We take and press the number here, we drill down in, and we can see uh, that we have one lesson under here under basic academic training for nuclear operators. Wow. Once we drill in, we kind of we see an abstract. We see the lesson files here, and we see the ability to take and go into that lesson. So we'll go ahead and just do. You'll see here that we say lab to try, shift lab for demo, that sort of thing. So let's go ahead. I'll do a demo shift lab, which shift control L, as we can see right here. Please wait a moment, and we can see right here. <laughs> oh my god, this is extreme. It's, so now, it, now it, it, it's a demo, this is, this a demo like, of operating a, a nuclear machine, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. So now you kind of see, and now you get the ability to take and drill into various, to various parts of the lesson here, just so you can get kind of an idea. But... Uh, a, a few things that you may have noticed here, of course, you'll notice that the lessons themselves are graphical. Some of the lessons have touchscreen interaction, some don't. Uh, but you'll notice one very important thing here. Have you seen any scrolling at all? No. There is no scrolling on Play-Doh. It's impossible with the terminal, so everything is formatted within the context of a single screen. And uh, they formatted all of their lessons to be able to do this. And to give here, I'll give you an example of some of the uh, uh, of some of the uh, of some of the how intricate the drawing and whatnot can actually be here. We're going to, we'll use the go feature here to go to a specific lesson called IQ. And this is a review and self quiz on eye anatomy. Now we can literally see it's showing you kind of here. It's telling you here what the, what the program is going to go through here, and how to use the program. But then we see down here, hit next to see a cross section of the eye. <laughs> and we can see here lots of annotations, and you get the opportunity to take and, and look at each letter here. That's the you know I hit E. That's the epithelium. That sort of thing. So you kind of get an idea of just how intricate the, the drawing can actually be. Now, at any given time, uh, there's a special, there's a, there's a keystroke that you should always use called shift stop if you want to get out. Shift mm -hmm. stop will, will, will stop whatever you're doing to get back out and give you the opportunity to either continue onto the menu system by pressing data or to press shift stop again to punch out of the system entirely. Go ahead now, now the interesting thing is you mentioned these these devices use touch screens. Yes. And and later on in the eighties, most devices actually used light pens. Yes. Instead. So and, and and we all know this light pen technology totally failed. Yes. So. Well, because nobody wanted to want yeah, it was it's one thing to, to to reach up and touch the screen. It's another to have to hold a uh, an, an implement. 
took right. all the time to take in touch. But believe me, I, I used light pen systems extensively, and that was my biggest problem. You kept getting wrist fatigue using the light pen. That was the problem. Uh, so, I mean, now that we've kind of seen that, let's go to something a bit more interesting and go into the game section. And, and the C64 version as well also has mouse support. So when there is touchscreen enabled stuff, you know, you can just click around the screen. Yes. With, with the, and actually, the pointer. And actually, thank you for, thank you for bringing up to that. Let's actually take and go over. And just as an example here, since this is a sort of C64 focused podcast here, I guess I, I guess I should bring up the C64 version, shouldn't I? Mm. So it's using a 1351 mouse support. Yes. Okay. So the thir- thir- okay. Yeah, that's the thing. Uh, it uses the the standard mouse support that's built into CC65. That means out of the box you get support for 1351 mouse, uh, 1350 or trackball devices and joystick devices. Mm-hmm. You get support for an inkwell light pen. Uh, you get support for a koala pad. So I mean, I have all that. <laughs> I could try it out. Yes. Yeah, well, I have a koala pet. I mean, I mean, it's not very sensitive, but it works. Good. So, yeah, you can try it out. I'm going to go ahead and cheat here and use the quick load here to bring this down here. Uh, in the in the correct NTSC aspect, yeah. I see. Yes. Which is perfect. I, I'm so, I get so frustrated seeing the, the, the kind of smooshed PAL version for everything. Yes. Yes. I Yeah, I agree. It drives me nuts, too. So now we've loaded the uh, now we've loaded the uh, C64 version of the software here, and you'll see that it's loaded up the serial driver here, and you'll see that we have a mouse cursor here set up ready to go, uh, and we're sitting inside of Plato Term. Oops, um, excuse me a second here. Driver, I think I got Swift Link here. Uh-huh. Uh, oh, Swift Link. Uh, yeah. Okay. Yes. Yeah. Yes. Which which is the CMD modem back from the day actually? Yes, yes. Yeah. Uh, it supports we support SwiftLink and user port twenty four hundred. So right out of the box, which I is lo- what I'm using. I've got the the user port Wi-Fi modems, which work without any. I mean, just first shot. Beautiful. Yes. So um, yeah, it's uh, yeah. I tried to support all this all this stuff out of the box. I initially was trying to support. Um, I initially was trying to support uh, the IP65 for things like the RRNet and the C64 NIC, etc. But some things need to be added into IP65, namely TCP window resizing, which is you know how TCP/IP does handshaking, right? So that uh, so that uh, the system doesn't get bogged down trying to handle all the protocol decoding. So. Yeah, but but I think RRNet because I did once an interview with Adam Dunkers who developed yeah. it. Yeah. It's using it's using micro IP and micro TCP IP. Yes. Yeah. So it's a totally different network protocol, um, more min- minimalized. Um, right. Okay. Hmm. So. Now we've used ATDT connected in, and we see the familiar uh, Plato refrain here. Mm-hmm. And we can see here, and you can start to see color start to pop up. Yeah, well, I see yellow. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Well, that's color. 
Yes. <laughs> Good. Yeah, it's because the the rest of the text is white. I don't uh, I don't set the background colors or anything just yet. So I'm still working working out how to handle all of this. It's like I said, experimental, very experimental. And just for me to understand, you said when the system were operative back in the day, they didn't have color monitors at first, right? No, it was all orange and black and orange displays, black and orange plasma. If you've seen a, if you've seen an orange plasma display on a laptop, that's what it was. Mm -hmm. okay. So, again, okay, Sam was last here in notes, and in fact, if we actually take and go into, for example, Commodore 8-bit notes here, you can start to see... So, I mean, as you can see right here, right off the bat, uh, you get much the same experience. Yeah. So, uh, we'll go ahead and stop here for a moment, come back. Could we go back to the game section? Yes. Because there's where we stopped. And I would really like to see Battleship. Okay, well, let's take a look. Yeah, let's take a look <laughs> at Battleship. And I'll do kind of a comparison here. Uh, oh, that would be beautiful. That yeah. would be beautiful. Yep. As a matter of fact, let's 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 do let's do a trick here. While we're while yeah, watch this. I'm gonna take and go talk to Sam here. And I'm gonna go. Sam is in the Atari group, and you'll see his screen changes here. Oh, we have a talk request. Let's let's answer it. Nice. So. Yeah, what term? Talk. So Thomas Cherry Holmes, okay. So now that we've done this, we now see that we have a uh, we now see that we have a talk request happening here. Hello. Hey there. Check this out. So now at this particular point, you'll see down at the bottom of the screen we see lab clear line shift, lab monitor mode, shift back to exit, right? Uh, if we go ahead and press monitor mode on the left-hand window here, this screen will be transposed over here automatically. Hmm. Nice. So we've, now we've entered monitor mode, and if I refresh the screen... <laughs> ah, you see the same thing on both monitors. Yep. Okay. Yes. And the host machine takes care of, of, of all, of, of basically reflecting everything automatically. So uh, go ahead and short game, okay, place your ships where you want them. And since I chose a short game, it's, it's only going to place three ships. And part of what's happening here, you'll notice that you'll, you'll see that the, uh, the, the Play-Doh ships here, these are done with custom character set graphics. And uh, character sets on uh, each character in a character set on Play-Doh is defined as an 8 by 16 grid. Well, that won't fit on a Commodore 64 display. You have to take and shrink that down. So what's literally happening is it's shrinking that down on the fly as the character sets are downloaded in uh, to a 5x6 character array and using image processing techniques to do so. And as you can see, I'm still working on it. It's not perfect yet, but it's being worked on. If you sit away um, far enough, you can't see it. You can't see it. <laughs> <laughs> So we go ahead. Okay, let's 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 go ahead. We place we place our ships here. Okay, great. Place the next ship. Okay, we'll do a horizontal orientation. Uh, oh, can't do that. That's going. That'll go off the board. Let's try. Oh, come on. Uh, 
I'm, I'm trying to do this as fast as I can. I'm totally impressed that the ships are actually displayed graphically. Mm -hmm. I mean, the whole thing is displayed graphically, really. Yes, I mean, it's, it is. it's kind and of a... Uh, not only are they displayed graphically, but uh, anything that you place on the screen can be placed at a particular pixel. This includes text, which is one of the challenges of building a terminal for uh, a terminal for these 8-bit machines. You can't use any. You can't use most of the tricks that you would normally use. You're thinking, oh, it's a text display, so I can fit everything in a fixed grid and pre-shift everything and really speed things up, but you really can't do all of that here. You can do some pre-shifting, but you can't do all of it. Right. So, uh, yeah, okay, we're ready. Next, go on. And then it gives a little message here saying, okay, every effort has been made to make sure that Plato doesn't cheat. I think that's cute, but you know. <laughs> so now it actually takes it, and... Um, now it takes and says, okay, yeah, sure. Do you want to go first? Okay, pick a spot to shoot. And, ooh, look at that. I, I hit a ship. Okay, so now I have the opportunity to go another direction. Oops. I, oh, yeah. Now he shoots. Now he shoots. Okay, five, five, five four, uh, four, four. Okay. Etc. And so on and so on and so on. So, you know, there. There's Battleship. And so are you able to play these? Oh, sorry. Yeah, yeah I wanted to say... Um, so you were actually playing against the computer, though yes. the uh, games back in the day had uh, like an artificial intelligence already. Yeah, well, this is, yeah, you're playing against uh, well, it's uh, back then they would have called it artificial stupidity, but yes. <laughs> um, okay. Now, okay. It's worth now. Okay, now now. With that said, I will say that that uh, that that particular battleship game actually had an educational purpose. If you actually read the instructions for Battleship and go into the instructions pane, this was actually, this game of, of Battleship was actually used to teach a statistics class. Which if you think about how Battleship actually works and you think about probabilities of where ships are and whatnot, that makes perfect sense. And actually the algorithms in the Battleship game actually try to take this into account. So it keeps track of where ships, where, where, where ships, where, where, where you've already shot, where ships might have been, and the computer actually does a pretty decent job of guessing where the next shot might need to go. So, okay. you know. So, I uh, say you wanted to say something, you were interrupted, I'll, sorry. Yeah, no, I was just going to ask if, um, so this is playing against the, the computer. Is there, like, multiplayer? Yes, with, with there any is. Of these? Um, yes, some of the games are multiplayer, some of them are play against the computer, and some of them you play yourself. So, uh, and these are just the games that are on the menu. There are many more that are stuffed back in the back of the catalog that I will take and bring on to the menu. Uh, we'll go into Avatar, for example. And because we're sharing the screen here, we're just going to, we're just showing it as it looks from both sides of the machine here. But both of these players can actually play in the game together uh, in a multiplayer fashion. So it's, uh, yeah, that, it, that's just part of, part of the deal. You'll notice that this guy loaded the character set already and this guy's still going. But once we're there, okay, great. We now have, uh, welcome to Avatar. Bam. And as you can see, uh, first person display here. And you'll see even on the on the C64, you'll see that the uh, you'll see that the output is still 
quite responsive. Yeah. So um, one thing that I noticed is on the right side, it looks like a color crash yes. from the spectrum as we yes. know it. Yes, I, I guess that will be improved over the time, or was yes. it really well, that way back Some of that place? isn't really avoidable because of the way that the, the C64 handles color. Yes, exactly. That was actually my question. That's exactly right. Now, if somebody wants to take and go through the, the, the pain of firing off a raster interrupt on each individual scan line and use sprites to take and mask over the color clash, have at it. The code's out there. <laughs> okay. So, so, guys, you're all invited to help. But, I mean, we, you get the same kind of thing with, you know, like the 80-column the, the, uh, ANSI mode of, of Nova Term or Strike Term, you know, because exactly. because you've, you're – each C64 color cell is 8 by 8, but, um, you know, when you're when you're doing 80 columns, it's really 4 by 8. And here, it's – I don't know if this is – I don't know how many columns this is, but it's not – it's more than four, 64 columns. So, yes. So you are going to have that kind of weird little color clash, but I mean, functionally, it's yes, you know, I, it's it's not a, not a deal breaker as far as I'm I'm concerned, as far as you know, yeah, being able to enjoy it. Yeah, I was just trying. I was just trying to see if I could take and bring some color in, and I'm going to take and try and improve it as I can over uh, you know over 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 time. And the Spectrum guys saw it and absolutely flipped out. And I was and I was surprised too because the Spectrum version, I mean, has has full color. And as a matter of fact, let's take and bring another guy into the mix here. Um, we'll take and we'll we'll take and bring up a copy of Fuse. And uh, let's see. Boom. And that's actually, you'll see Owen popped up a little bit here. He's actually testing on, on his real spectrum. Uh, he's the guy you saw the picture of before. Uh, he's testing some changes I just made to fix some things that we found in the, uh, uh, in the, uh, in the interface one version that I posted up this morning, uh, yesterday. So, uh, give me just a moment. Let's see here. Oh, I need to, I need to load a snapshot here. And there is quite a bit of development because you just posted something this morning, I think, about, uh, yes. uh updates to the Apple II version. The Apple II GS version. Right. Uh, the Apple the Apple II version's been around for uh, the Apple II uh, the Apple II version's been around for months. And, and a matter of fact, I'll I'll even bring I'll bring out all of these as we take and just uh, as we take and, and dive through all of these. Let me go ahead and turn my SpectroNet back on. Uh, if you've never seen the SpectroNet, the SpectroNet is quite possibly one of the greatest things since sliced bread. Um, it is an Ethernet interface for the Spectrum, and it it hooks into the basic, so you can literally um, you can literally take and load programs off of the internet through this, and that's actually how uh, the SpectroNet version of Plato Term loads. It loads directly from my server, so you don't have to have a copy of it. Nice. You can literally just do uh, this. And so it's like a net boot on a PC. Yes. yes. Okay. On, on Spectrum. Yes. And as we can see right here, and here's this the Plato Term for the for the spectrum here, and we connect in. Nice. I added in fill for this one because it's because it was there. Right. That color, uh, Bob. I need to improve the block fill. Okay. 
Uh, yeah, there's the color clash I was talking about. That yes, is yes. that is a spectrum known yes. for. Yes, yes, it's, it's 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 because of the same it's because of the same reason. Mm. So, uh, yep, and so yeah, there you go again, same same experience. So, bam, pull that to the side for a second. Yeah. Now, um, let's go into air fight. Air fight is a 3D simulation. Now, I'll figure out how to take off. Okay. But I tried. <laughs> so we go ahead, we pick the squadron. I'm, I went into the, to the circle squadron here. We pick a fighter. I'm going to go ahead and pick the uh, General Dynamics YF-16 here. And then we get kind of some stats here uh, as far as how much empty weight, how much of that can be taken up by payload, which means the rest of it's fuel, that sort of thing. Uh, so you take that into account when you allocate how many missiles and how much fuel that you want. So I'm going to say 8,000 pounds of fuel. I'll say 10 missiles to start off with. You're now loaded with 11,000 pounds of stuff. And now we have, uh, now we have an airstrip right here. We're on the airstrip ready to take off. Now for the interest of speed, I'm actually going to take and turn off all of the radar instrumentation here except for my uh, sticks and rudders. And we're going to uh, go ahead and pull the flaps back. Hit F to pull the flaps back. Pull the stick back. Push 9 to push the throttle in. And you'll see... There we go and take off. Impressive. Yes. And you can see that yeah, there is a bit of a speed difference here, but, you know, it's a 3D flight simulator. And right. not only is it a, a 3D flight simulator, it's a dogfighting simulator. So you can shoot each other. So your, your goal is to shoot each other down. So, right. uh, yeah, anyway, um, go ahead and pull back. It's here. interesting that the Spectrum version is faster than the 64 version. Yeah. Well, no, we're not looking at the Spectrum version right here. We're looking at the... This is the C64 version. I'm so sorry. Okay, oh, yeah, yeah. No, but the okay. Spectrum version... No, but the Spectrum version actually is pretty fast, too. So uh, the 2GS version is, is really fast, especially now that I've implemented the text drawing functions here. Uh, one thing that I still need to do for the C64 version is speed up the text output. Once the text output gets sped up, it will be a lot faster, too. And I also yeah, I thought that you were calling you... for... Oh, oh, so, yeah. Sorry. I, said, I, I also see that you were calling for testers for uh, super CPU testers yes. for it. Oh, it runs really well on the super on, on on the emulated super CPU that I have here. It's really fast. Yeah. So I mean, you can see right here that they've literally taken. I mean, this is a a three D flight simulator written in nineteen seventy six. Um, do you support Paul machines too, or just NTSC? Uh, it doesn't matter from my perspective. It really well, well because support. because well, I well, have no, no, a super it does, CPU. It does, it does support. Yes. It does support it, so it really I I don't really make that distinction. So yeah. Ah, okay. Okay. Well, so I have a super CPU, a real one. I just have to get around to dig into this network stuff. Mm. Because this so, isn't it isn't speed dependent, and it's not um, it's not like. There, there's nothing, like you were saying, there's no real, like, raster cuts or anything like that that would yes, that would make it, you know, NTSC or PAL only. Yeah, exactly. And, 
as one more as one more demonstration here, you'll see that there's a game of uh, mahjong here, and I don't know if either of you have ever played uh, Shanghai from Activision or are familiar with it. Uh, yes, sure. Uh, yeah, 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 yeah. It's one of my favorite games, actually. Ah, so you you know the guy you know the name of the guy who who developed it. No, but I know the game. <laughs> the guy who developed it was Brody Lockhart, and you see his name right here. This version came out first. He developed the he developed it first here on Play-Doh, and he loved it. He loved it so much he wanted to take and bring it out for the microcomputer users. So that's why we got Shanghai again, another cross reference. Mm. So. And you can see here, we'll go ahead and use the PC character set, which is not as detailed, but you can kind of see. We'll go ahead and use the mouse for, for, for you know, the touch screen for selection here. Go ahead, regular game. And you can see. It looks, it looks very amazing on the left, I have to say. Mm -hmm. It really has a 3D impression. Yes. Uh, they, they, he, he came up with the idea of essentially using uh, the box thickness to indicate the level of, uh, of a particular pile. Nice. Yeah. It's pretty, uh, pretty good. Pretty good. Excellent. So, I mean, there you go. It's, it, that help, that, it gives you an idea of just how... Oops, bug I need to fix. Excuse me. <laughs> yes. Well, can happen. Yes, it can happen, and I'm 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 constantly developing. You know, I'm constantly developing and making this thing better. So yeah, you, you see all sorts of stuff like that happen, and and to to really bring the point home, I mean, like I said, I want uh, coders to come in and really start developing new content for this system. And for that next piece, we'll actually take and go into another part of the system here. And sure, go ahead. Yes. Uh, we'll actually take and go into another part of the system here and demonstrate the development environment. Now I went ahead and logged off, and so as a result here, we're out of monitor mode here. I will keep him open because I'm going to take and come back to him. And we will log in. When you ask for an author account, you actually do get another user account, except this one's in the author group. Hmm. So it has a permission system in the background. Yes, it does. Uh, well, and, and, and in this case, you actually get put into a whole different environment here. Uh, you can see right here that uh, this is, you're actually inside of the editing environment right now. You either have to know the name of a lesson that you want to go to, uh, such Or as, you type in help. Yeah, or you, or you press the help key. So you can see, you know, shift data for a list of additional options, and it kind of gives you, you know, uh -huh. yeah. So uh, if we go ahead and if we know the name of a lesson, we can, of course, go to it. There's a battleship. Pull out. Or if you know the name of a notes file, you can, of course, go to that as well. And so on. But if you're doing what you normally do in this system and you want to work on a particular chunk of code, you type in the name of the lesson, and you get the opportunity to either inspect the lesson, which means just look at it, read only, you can try the lesson, or you can enter the security code for that lesson, 
and be taken into the development environment. Now, if you hit inspect, it won't ask you for the password, and you can look at it through the editor here. You just won't be able to edit it. Um, now, what we have here is this is the development environment in a nutshell. Lessons are divided into parts. You can think of parts literally as disk sectors. And each part has a block of code inside of it, a block of code or a block of some type. Uh, there are other types of in, uh, there are other types of information as well, such as uh, character set blocks or common blocks, which are where you store shared memory. Uh, you know things like that. So uh, let's go ahead and look, for example, in subs draw here. We'll go ahead. I, I use the plus key to go to the second page. Select subs draw here, and this is the this is the development environment right here in a nutshell. Right here, uh, this is Tutor, and as you can see, it kind of looks like Basic with some it's a lot like Basic. Yeah, with with some with some sort of kind of sort of structure with some things thrown in. There are some special characters. Like for example, here it's not an equals to set a variable, but there's a uh, there's an assign key, which is the the escape key. I've mapped this usually to the escape key, so it uh, set set this variable to this, set this variable to that, that sort of thing. And you can see right down here, uh, you can see custom drawn character set graphics mixed in with the code. It does that just fine. It's like it doesn't care. Yeah. Uh, and that's actually how you that's how you do some graphics work here. You can see the solid Othello pieces, the black Othello pieces, all those bits and pieces. And uh, other interesting quirks here, you see explicit indentation. And yes, you actually do need this because the parser is very strict in this regard. Hmm. Uh, you also have local variables uh, and you have uh, you have global variables. Uh, as well, that are actually several tiers deep. You can have variables that are stored for a particular student, such as where they are inside a particular program. You can have uh, variables that are shared across everybody who uses the lesson. Those are common variables, and that, those were the common blocks that you saw earlier. And in fact, if you put two and two together, that is exactly how the multiplayer stuff works inside Plato. Do is just all you have to do is just use shared variables. You don't have to worry about protocols. You don't have to worry about building a signaling method. You just say, "This is what I want to keep track of," and you keep track of it. You mentioned earlier that nothing supports scrolling, but I remember there were other machines like the C60, uh, the, like the 16-bit Atari computers that were also known to. To not support hardware scrolling, but mm -hmm. there was some software workaround. Yes, is there some workaround for this uh, Plato too? The Plato does not do any scrolling of any type whatsoever. Okay. Everything has to be done. Uh, if you if you're familiar with, say, for example, a Tektronix 4000 series terminal, not me. <laughs> okay, it's kind of the same thing. Um, yeah, look that guy up. The Tektronix 4000 series terminals were like the gold standard for graphics output in the uh, mid to late 70s to the early 80s. And they used a what was called a storage tube display to uh, basically draw directly on the screen. And the screen, the tube itself took care of refreshing the display. It was its own memory. 
So kind of the same thing happening here. So uh, anyway, I digress. And we're talking about we're we're talking about um like end of screen scrolling. So like when yes. you yeah. So there's no there's no like like with the C64, if you just type stuff, when you get to the bottom yes. of the screen, it scrolls yes. up. Yes. And with this, it, it doesn't. Each screen is its own thing. You know, you can't you can't scroll it down or back up. And and that that's the kind of scrolling we're talking about. We're not talking about like like smooth scrolling like exactly. the C64 has that built yes. into hardware. Yes. Yeah, yeah. Exactly. Thanks yeah. for thanks for summarizing uh, my question. Yeah, yeah I wasn't I wasn't sure if it, what you were asking about. So yeah, it was exactly the thing because the Atari 16-bit computers didn't have hardware scrolling. So like jump and run games like Giant Sisters, for example, the Atari 16-bit version doesn't have scrolling. But later in the 80s, they um, worked on techniques to um, work around the the limitation of not having hardware um, scrolling by software tricks, you know. Yes. Right. So you know, it's the same like giving uh, yeah. 64 64 colors by using um, by using scan lines and mixing mm -hmm. up uh, two pixels of different colors. And yes. uh, people would think it's a new color because of the uh, blur effect of the CRT screens. Yes. But, but I guess, as I said, it's not possible. I guess um, the, the system wasn't meant to, to be used for racing games or something. No, there was not really a necessity to have a fluent, no. smooth um, scrolling. I get that, yes. And I, and I don't know if you noticed here, but actually when I, well, when I was actually scrolling, quote-unquote, through the code here, it was actually updating the entire screen. Yes, I've noted that. I've noted that. Um, and there are other systems doing that. For example, the Vectrex yes. is doing the same thing, exactly. but it's but it's so fast that, for example, pole position is incredible fast, yes. despite it's it's refreshing the whole screen every time. It's in, it's it's really fast. So some yes. systems don't have hardware scrolling, but they are using some software tricks to make it look like it's hardware scrolling. Exactly. You know. <laughs> exactly. So what we have here, I'm actually, uh, I'm, I'm, I'll actually take and bring this up over here real quick. Here, hey, check out out this code I'm working on. So go ahead, same trick as before. And as we go ahead, and I will go ahead and actually send a command here to send the character set back, load the character set in, okay, very good, and once we take and refresh the screen, yeah, we are in perfect mirroring mode, yeah, and I mean, as you can see, it's, it's just, it, it doesn't matter which terminal that you actually use, it's actually going to take and, and try to display the right thing here, so, I mean, uh, you know, see the Othello pieces here. Everything's going to be taken and drawn here as it, as best as it can here. Bam, bam. Uh, you know, and so on. So, um, let's say, for example, uh, that I'm editing a piece of code here. I'm going to say, let's look at line number 23 here. And I want to take and modify line number 23. And I'm going to say, actually, I want a different mode. Mode, mode, mode. Which mode am I supposed to use here? Oh, wait. I'll ask the system for help. So, I will take and use the term key again, 
And you can think of term keys as, as of terms as desk accessories on steroids. These are accessible throughout the entire system, no matter where you are. Talk, help, that sort of thing. And what we're looking for here is help. Uh, help on what command? Uh, we go to, um, let's say, mode. And now we have uh, context-sensitive help right there in the editor, and it drops us back to what we were doing. So now I can just type again, oh, I need inverse. You'll notice I didn't have to take and switch modes again. It just dropped me back there. I type it in, end story. Nice. So, um, not only that, but I'm just going to take and, and back out because I don't want to make that change. Uh, not only that, but we also have the ability to go look at the full reference using the Q command, which takes us into a little info page here. And since it came in from the editor, it assumes that I'm wanting to look for help on a specific feature. Well, let's look at the draw command. You saw the draw command kind of littered all around the place here. And one thing to really note about the system is that uh, the... Um, the, the documentation is also written in Tutor, like the rest of the system. So not only is the documentation documentative and informative, it's also instructive. Again, the uh, T in Plato stands for teaching, and they meant that quite literally. You know what I feel like this would be perfect for? What? There's a lot of, especially here in the U.S., there's a lot of push towards, like, homeschooling and that sort of, you know, getting away from the traditional public school yes. whole framework. And there's also been a lot of introducing children to these older systems because, you know, a lot of kids, you, you, you get a cell phone, you don't really get an idea of how the machine works. With these yeah. older machines, you know, a C64 or an Atari you sit down, you turn it on, and you have to figure out what to do with it. And this seems like the best way to, that someone could sort of um, mix those two up. Like, yes. like because there's so much stuff on here. Yes. It's like Wikipedia with real information. Yes. And uh, <laughs> there's, yeah, and the quality of the documentation that's actually here, just from the from the programming perspective, is some of the best documentation I've seen in my thirty some odd years in the computing industry. Uh, it's, it's absolutely amazing. And there are a ton, you can see lots of drawing commands and everything else, bam. Uh, you know, uh, as we zoom out, we can, oops, I hit back by mistake. Let me go ahead and go here. Yeah, it's, it's very important that, that you are keeping up on this because as, as I always notice, um, not to, uh, knowledge is getting lost. Yes. Because if you don't preserve it now, it will be lost forever because nobody else will take care of it. Exactly. And part of what I'm trying to do here as well is not only just preservation, but it's also correction. Um, the uh, Plato was present at so many influential points in computing history, but that has been lost due to politics, uh, due to just not... Uh, you know, due to not being a runaway success. And part of what I'm trying to do is, I'm trying to kill two birds with one stone. First, I'm trying to provide a, an online service for all these retro computing users, uh, because you can't put a Commodore 64 on the Instagram, you can't put an Apple II on to Facebook, but you can put them onto this thing. And, 
uh, I am trying to correct the record as to the importance of Plato in computing history because it is extremely important. That that reminds me a bit of uh, 2005 when Brian yeah. Becknell was the first guy to yeah. release the history book on the edge, the rise and fall of Commodore. And for the first time, people were reading that the first home computers for the masses were made by Commodore, not yeah. by Apple. You yeah. know, like, yeah. wow, yes, yeah. history books got corrected. And yes. Brian it, Becknell it, was, was really um, the pioneer it, here in, the, in, yes. in getting computer history corrected. And you are doing the same thing with Plato. Yes, and Irata online. That's totally, exactly. totally amazing. Yes, and yes, that's what that's part of what I'm trying to do here. Absolutely. Now let's see. Let's kind of go back here, and I want to take and move forward just a little bit. Now you, sh I showed you a bit of the the coding environment, as you can see right there. You see that you can code. You see that you can get information on various things as you're coding, both in both in terms of context-sensitive help and in a larger set of documentation. There are also tons of tutorials on the system for writing in Tutor as well. But there's also a whole bunch of other editors built inside the system here. We see a block here that's called a character set block. Let's go inside of it. We can see we have character set block cares. We can edit this. And we see a menu here for menu slots used, memory slots available, that sort of thing. If we look here in, in, in memory slots used, I need to get rid of these blanks down here, but you'll see uh, the individual character elements for each of the Othello pieces up here. There are approximately, there are 16 of them that are being used right here. And um, uh, you can have, a, a custom character set can have up to 128 characters inside of it. And the important thing to understand here, for those of you who are familiar with character, for doing, with doing character set work, for example, on the Commodore 64, this character set that's here is loaded in addition to the standard alphanumeric character set that is running on the terminal at the same time. They don't override each other. So that's 128 characters that you have in addition to mm. standard alphanumeric set. You don't have to compromise. Yeah, which is quite an exception because if you used a character set on the Commodore, it was replacing yes. the original one that was built in the machine. Um, and and uh, actually, character sets um, were sometimes even used for graphics, like in Lemmings for the C64. Yes. Mm -hmm. The um, the um, environment is actually built up by character yeah. by character sets. Or well, let's, I, would, let's, I would venture to to say that a lot of of stuff is based on character sets because yeah, it's, it's yeah. just easier to display them that way. Yes. Yeah. It, it but is. but they look like normal graphics, so right. I wouldn't think it as a user. Yes. The same, the same exact rules apply here. The same exact rule apply here. So um, now we can see that we can see the slots we have available. We still, we, we still see that we have a lot of character set room available here. But we also see. Let's go back in. Now we can take and edit them. Let's edit them one at a time. We can of course edit them one at a time. Select the first, the top corner of the solid piece. And we see our character set right here, ready to go. We can go in, we can edit, turn bits on and off, that sort of thing.
And if we're feeling really masochistic, we can take and just enter the numbers indirectly in Octal. <laughs> sure. Why not? So, um, not only do we have that capability, but we also have the ability to edit multiple characters together as one entity for larger graphics. So if we go ahead and, com and compose the individual pieces that make up both of my Othello pieces here, press data when finished. And there you have Fischhaus's set editor. Mm-hmm. <laughs> oh, yes. I was sitting on the Commodore 64 making shards that for hours. Yes. 20 years ago when I was a teenager. So you can see right here, it's all, it's all here, it's all available. So you can, you can do bitmap graphics in this way. And, uh, in addition to that, you also have, Let's go ahead and bounce out a little bit here. Go into another lesson called Errata, which is kind of a little holding cell for uh, all sorts of shared resources that I use across the site. And we've got a block, we've got a set of blocks here called Errata font. And it's a line set. What's a line set? Hmm. Well, the Play-Doh designers actually wanted to be able to not only do custom character sets at normal sizes, you have normal size, which is size zero. You also have what's called bold size, bold size, which doubles the number of pixels. But you also have, they also wanted to be able to do intricate design, intricate fonts at larger sizes. And in the process, they accidentally invented or reinvented, depending on your point of view, proportional fonts. <laughs> ah, very nice. In the 1970s. Yeah, and as I said, some years later, that's, that, was, that was all forgotten, and then mm -hmm. things were reinvented. Right, yeah. Agree. So, I mean, yeah, that, literally, there you go. It's like, okay, so you have that. So now you have that, and because of the way the host system actually works, all of the abstractions for uh, for trying for using the line sets, all you do is say, I want in your code, I want to use the line set, and it takes and does all the drawing and everything for you automatically. So, you have that. But, as they say in infomercials, but wait, there's more. Um... <laughs> We also have uh, the ability to take and do um, just overall graphic illustrations as well. And you'll see here, uh, this is a lesson that I have that has all of the splash screens for all the different versions of Plato Term. Uh, those are actually, the whenever you first loaded it up on the Commodore 64, what you were actually seeing was a Plato data stream actually being rendered out. And if we actually go and start the lesson here. We can see the one for, I think, yeah, the Atari Play term there. Yeah, the one for the Atari here. We probably have enough stuff to show us 
all about it in the next three, four hours. <laughs> this is so huge. It's, it's it is. incredible. It's enormous. It's enormous. But watch this. Now, I'm going um, to. This will be my last major point right here. So, um, uh, so you saw that. We'll go back into it here. And we'll look at Atari here. Let me see. Do I still have. Yeah. And you see the code right there. But you see all of these, uh, let me go, is it Tori logo? Yeah, there we are. You see all these draw commands here to draw the things like the logo and whatnot. Well, believe it or not, um, those things, I didn't type all of that out. I actually used the screen editor that's built into the environment to take and draw that out using the touchscreen. Hmm. And I can actually take the code here that's here and bring it back into the screen editor to edit once more. I just have to specify which lines to bring in. Yeah, incredible. So I mean you can yeah, so you can see right there. So now you have the ability to take and you can draw certain things, and add a box, perhaps. Okay, great. You know, bam, bam. Uh, set the thickness, that sort of thing. This is where uh, your, your light pen or your claw packet come in handy, Yerk. Exactly. <laughs> exactly. Uh, and you know, squares, circles, complex shapes, all you know, uh, all, all, all can be done, taken care of here. And once it's done, what it actually does is it puts. Uh, it, it, it literally takes and translates that back into code and puts it back in the code for you. Hmm. So not only can, uh, not only can, um, uh, coders get in on the action, but artists can also kind of get on the action to take and make new and interesting content that anybody on the system can use. That reminds me a bit of, um, you know, like later web development programs like front page where you would yes. click your home page together and in the background it would write the HTML code. Mm -hmm. That's kind right. of the same system, right? Yep. And there, there it actually, because I only did the first 45 lines here, it went, oh, put this at the end and it took and put the box that I drew here and dropped it right here. So we'll go ahead and delete that, bam, get that out, boom. And so on. So that's, you know, that's kind of a, in, in, a, in a nutshell, it's kind of a whirlwind tour of, uh, of the system. I mean, of course, you've got notes. Yeah. Is, now, now, what about the, is there a community aspect of this? You know, like different users, you know, interacting and, and stuff like that? That's, yeah, that's, that's part of, that's part of what I'm trying to facilitate. And what you're, what you're talking about and suggesting has less to do with, uh, technical issues, uh, mm -hmm. than it does more to do with, um, uh, than it does more with, um, more to do with social processes than anything else. And I'm trying to take and facilitate that as best I can. And to help facilitate that, of course, you've got, you have notes. And notes are rather interesting because they are, like I said before, the first major implementation of a threaded discussion forum. I mean, to kind of give you an idea, notes first went online in the summer of 1973 <laughs> um, and was, you know, steadily improved throughout the years. 
Um, so you have the ability to take and, and make threads and reply to threads, do those sorts of things. Uh, a little bit of bold text there. Um, and um, anybody who wants a notes file, either for uh, public use or for the small group, can ask for can ask for a notes file to be provisioned for them, or a private a private notes file for themselves. That sort of thing. There are fine grained access controls to facilitate all of that. Um, and you've also got, in addition to that, uh, you saw in the menu system, as a matter of fact, if you actually, you can actually go into the menu system, it's another lesson just like the rest. It's again, tutor just like everything else. Um, so that is why you were so eager to talk to us to um, promote the system a bit more and making yes. other people uh, being aware of it. Because yes. I have to say, the first time I stumbled upon it um, on on Google Plus, I had no idea what this is. You know, like, okay, this looks like an online system, and it has games on it. Uh, mm, I'm not sure. And then then I then I was then I was uh, send, sending it to HA, um, and and his his first impression I don't know what was your first reaction HA it wasn't my, my like you were reaction, super hyped no my first reaction uh, was I I, I having I wasn't familiar with the Plato system and my first reaction was I, I thought this was something new that was being built and then I uh, but I did like I did really like the idea of the the kind of the graphical term and and the way that it's all you know, done graphically like that. And then I, I looked into it a bit more, and once I, I did some research into what it was and realized that this was something that had been established decades ago yes. and and it was now cross-platform, I got way more excited when I suddenly realized this is something that that I could theoretically, I could go, well, not theoretically, I, I, in reality, I can go on my C64 with this, and yes. then when I'm on the road, I can pull out my, my regular MacBook and go online with it with that too. Yes, or, exactly. or with my Amiga, if I felt like going on with that, it's like all this stuff <laughs> yes. will be, you yes. know, it's 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 a cross-platform network for the retro computing, which is something that I think is sorely missed. Yes, because we do have, you know, That's things like yeah. right, like, yeah, right. We have things like you know the the Habitat project is out and or Neo Habitat and and but it's Quantum easy. Link. Specific. Right, exactly. There's there's it's one network or another, and then you've got BBSs. Which you can get to through any regular term program, but again, that's kind of, you know, it's been done in its text, and it's not yeah. right, you know. Whereas this is something unique and cross-platform, and and has huge amounts of potential. Yes, I'm hoping so. And to to finish the thought about uh, building a community, there's also in addition to the term talk, there is also Talkomatic, and which is a multi-user chat program as well. So. If you come in, it's just kind of a place for small groups to be able to come in, and they can talk and chat. Group chat, group yeah. chat, yeah. Mm. So, and the group chat type. Yeah, that is that is that is what what I I I executed back in the days. Yeah. When you when you did a group chat, yes, you had you had this um, real time update on on all on all. Uh, Participants. You got to and see how badly your friends typed. Yes. Yes. <laughs> yes. Oh my God! You know. <laughs> yes. Exactly. Yeah. 
So it was I, it was horrible because sometimes it went it went out of sync because I was the one with the slowest internet connection on a modem dial up yeah. modem. So mm -hmm. everybody was mad on me because they had to take so long to read my text. <laughs> uh, I, I uh, good good old times, twenty years ago. I still remember that. Exactly. <laughs> so I mean, you can you now you kind of get an idea of 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 what I'm kind of shooting for. So it's um, amazing. Yeah. And uh, I, there was a video that I actually shot where I actually did a demonstration of the conferencing feature where I had uh, a version, every major version of Plato Term that's actually uh, accessible and, and running right now. I had them all connected at once, and I had them all connected to a single conference sharing, uh, sharing a session and watching all at the same time on OBS, each window visible, and you could literally watch the whole screen sharing session ripple across all the different displays. Well, if you send us the link to it, we can put it in when yeah. we edit the podcast. I mean, Absolutely. that's a good thing about having a video e version of this. We can just edit it like that, you know. And it would be pretty impressive to see, I guess. Yeah. And there are more and there are more coming. Um, and here, of course, uh, you know, the Apple II version is available here. It's a bog standard Apple II program. <laughs> And as you can see, it's much the same thing. Bam, there you go. And not only that, but the um, Apple II GS version is rather unique in that it supports Marinetti. So if you have an Ethernet uh, device, for example, it will work as is. Where did I put my car? Oh, there it is. Yeah, yeah. So if we take and go in here, we can see. Our Apple II GS version here. Let me see. Uh, system six. Yep. AJ is an Apple user, so he probably knows a lot more about that than me. You know, I never got to. I, we had two GSs in in school, but I never really used uh, the the system. But it's basically just I'm, Mac OS without being Mac OS. Yeah, I'm actually. Well, this is the first program I've ever written for the two GS, and I have to actually say I'm actually impressed. So, you know, it's, and all, and that's the thing. All the versions of Plato that you've seen right now, and this is very important to understand, they're all using the same core code. It's all written in C, and I'm literally porting it across. Mm -hmm. Yeah, Mike, I understood that. Yeah. So, uh, still some glitches here. I'm literally taking, I've, I've changed this to use uh, Quick Draw. Uh, for text output here, and it improved the text speed immensely. Oh yeah, I saw that the first time when you started up, I was like, wow, this is incredible fast. Yeah. So, boom, 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 boom. And so you can see. Well, the 2GS is also a beefy, so that was like, you know, a 16-bit. Yeah, it's a 16-bit machine running at like 2.8 megahertz, and it's you know as you can see it's doing a pretty decent little job here. Uh, I'm still in the middle of working on this guy here, but hopefully he'll be he'll be uh, finalized out in the next week or so. But you can see, yeah, there we go. So we can safely say bef before this podcast is out, because we will take a bit to edit this video and. Mm -hmm. um, that, yeah. that, that the 2GS version will be, that will, yeah, the 2GS version will be available. Um, yeah. I guess. 
Yeah. Oh, yeah. And 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 there are more. I mean, uh, I would start up Altera, but Altera tends to take and and uh, grab all the GPU for itself. <laughs> and I've even got. I'm even working on a version for you know MSX, all these other machines, just basically rippling down through, uh, rippling down through all the different environments, taking care of them. Uh, One computer you didn't mention was the Vic 20, but then I don't know oh, if there's would, if there's even I, I don't know if there's even a network interface for it. Sure. You are not the only one who has asked about that. Now, while the user port modems, the user port Wi-Fi modems would work, uh, and the and the computer is fast enough, that's not the problem. Graphic abilities. Uh, well, even if it, even if the the actual problem is that there are only 176 pixels across on a Vic 20 yeah. display. Like and, I said, yeah. Yeah, and I need I need 256 pixels minimum. But it runs Doom. Yes. <laughs> yeah, I know. Blocko Doom, but yes, Doom. Yeah. It, it... <laughs> but um, yeah. So. It runs Doom, and if you stand, you know, 30 feet away from the screen, it kind of looks like Doom. Kind of looks like to where, it. To where, to where you can't see the brick-sized pixels. Yeah, exactly. So, yeah, you weren't the only one that asked about a VIC-20 version. But I have um, on my list, I do have a plus four. Uh, I do have a plus four version on my list. The only reason it hadn't been done yet is because I literally have to take and port the uh, graphics driver for the C64 over to the Plus 4. Mm. The Plus 4 was the same computer like the C16 and, six, and yeah. the C116. And right. um, I, I once spoke with Bill Hurd about it from Commodore, and he said that those models were mostly used in the east of Europe. Yes, yes correct. Like Romania and all that stuff, Bulgaria and all that stuff. Right. So... Um, A two, megahertz, would make a, lot of, yeah. a two megahertz 80-column C128 version would be cool, as would, again, Amiga and like the, uh, like the uh, ST, the Atari ST. A, 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 a version for the C128, you say? Yeah. Oh. Sure, you have that already. Oh. You? you should mention that, because... Uh, um, <laughs> You have you have that of course. Yeah. Yes, I do. Um, I do. Uh, I probably don't have it built. Let's find. Let's see if I do. Uh, if not, I can build it. Let me see. Play-Doh. These are Play-Doh terms. GS PC PC Junior. Um, There's ST. Yeah, ST. Um, so if we go to Play-Doh Term 64, we will find. There's there's even one for the TI-994A as well. By the way. Um, so there's a uh, disk C128, and no, I don't have it built, but it actually does support the uh, the VDC. Oh. So it uses, uh, the catch is that it is 640 by 480 interlaced, which means you have to have 64k of VDC memory. But I'll take and pull up a picture here. Just to show that this actually does work. So that means you need to have you need to have an upgraded version of the or, or, or the the D or the DCR. Yeah. yeah, exactly. You need to have a D. Uh, you need to have a D machine. Let me. My flat 128 does have the upgrade. I can. We can post a link to where people can actually purchase the 64k VDC upgrades. Yes. 
Exactly. Only like 15 it's, bucks. It's, yeah, yeah, 15, 20 bucks, and it's worth every penny, and you get, uh, hey, there, there she is. Hello. And as you can see right there. Oh, yeah. There it is running there, and what you don't see right there is that's actually a full-size Play-Doh font. Nice. So, yes. It, it looks nice and crispy. So That is excellent. Yeah. So, yes, there is a 128 version. Awesome. So, anyway, uh, so that's, you know, that, that's about it for me. Little bits and pieces from the ST version there. Uh, yeah. Nice. See version, I guess. Yeah. So, um, well, so let me ask you, when do you actually consider fi this product to be finished? Or is that something you will do for the rest of your life? Uh, I don't. I don't think there is going to be a finished point. Um, okay. It's. Um, I. Of course. You know. I'm going to get most of the. I'm going to get as many terminals as I can actually done, and then my focus shifts to being essentially a community. The basically the guy trying to facilitate the community. So that basically boils down to. Oh, you have crazy idea A. Hey, well, what do you need to make that happen? Nice. Right, right. Um, to give you an idea, here's here's uh, here's some low hanging fruit for you. Uh, the Plato the Plato protocol has a concept called an external key, and you can use this to control external devices. Plato terminals had an eight bit parallel port that you could attach things to, and one of those things was a sound card. Yes, sound card in the mid 1970s called the Gooch Synthetic Woodwind, which provided uh, it was named after the guy who designed it. So, um, uh, Sherwin, yeah, anyway, uh, which provided four square wave voices for music. Huh. And it's which is pretty impressive for that time. Yes. Uh, and, that, and that's controlled uh, literally by sending external keys, uh, which are inter which are passed over from the terminal program to the sound card. Now, what could be done today, for example, is to establish a convention by which we could specify sound parameters for uh, a, a sort of a lowest common denominator set of sound parameters for square wave type music. Uh, for SID devices, for GI devices, for Pokey, etc., etc., and kind of come up with a quick little standard for adding sound. Mm -hmm. Okay, so that's another thing on your to-do list, actually. Yes. So mm -hmm. you have, so you have the ability to, so you have the ability to do that. Not only that. Um, so okay, I mean, I'll, I'll take and put this into its own little block of of, of points here. Uh, what do who who should be interested? Who should be interested in this in this chaotic project? Um, the first, of course, users. Lots of vintage computing users would love to love to see this thing if they only knew what it was. Thank you for helping me promote it. Um, the second thing is uh, interested programmers, coders, and the like to work as authors to make new and interesting content for the system using the development environment, which we saw earlier. Uh, the third, of course, is um, systems staff. Uh, I'd like to get some help 
you know, maybe one or two people to help with things like making sure the system stays running well enough, uh, uh, provisioning accounts, making notes, files, that sort of thing, things that used, other users need that can only be handled through systems operators. Uh, then finally, there's another special group of people that might be interested. Archaeologists. Mm. Oh, yes. Oh, yeah. There are, there is, there are th there's three decades worth of content and code sitting inside my system. Sitting inside CyberOne, but sitting inside my system, too. All sorts of stuff that needs to be found, that needs to be documented, that needs to be rediscovered. What, you might ask? Well, let me give you one example. Proving to the adage that Kermit was ported everywhere, Kermit was indeed ported everywhere, huh. including Plato. So they have a mechanism here for doing file transfers. Not only that, but uh, if you're a systems user or an archaeology type user, you have access to the source code so you can see how it was done. Because it's written in Tutor. Not only that, but there is a system, there is a mechanism built into the system for doing file transfers between different Plato systems. Well, that quite makes sense because um, you would need to transfer data between the systems. So it's it's in in a lot of ways it's kind of like uh, it's kind of like an early FidoNet. Right. So you have that. Um, you have um, the authoring environment that was used to author uh, Plato Discware. Uh, which was offered for the Apple II, it was offered for the TI-994A, and for other systems, also exists on this system as well. It's the Plato Courseware Development System. It's here. <laughs> Warning, it's no longer a support authorizing product. <laughs> Correct. But it's here. Bam. That needs to be see to see if it's possible to take them and make this work. Uh, there are, like I said, there's tons of stuff. There's there's source code to the microplato interpreter. There's, uh, you know, if, if we can if we can implement microplato, do a do a portable implementation that can go across to all these other Plato term implementations. We can do arcade style games, whatnot. Um, I mean, if you really want to see just how uh, just how much, how, what you can do when you actually have enough bandwidth? Watch this. I'm going to take and open up and go to Cyber One, the other major system here. Oop, darn it. And this will be the last thing, I swear. Um, keep aspect ratio. And You'll see here that the sign-up screen here is different. This is a classic Plato screen. Uh -huh. But much the same interaction. And it just drops you into the authoring environment. Okay. Now, one of the first things that I did when I got onto this system was I, I wanted to see how far to push the... Push the push, oh, wait, actually, I'll do this instead. 
Yes, it is. Okay. Wow. This is how crazy it can get. So, yeah. Okay. Well, this is this is pretty fluent. Yeah. Yeah, and of course, this is taking this takes a machine that's both fast enough and enough bandwidth to actually update. You do not want to run this on the C64. Because <laughs> <laughs> it will draw every frame. Yeah, that that was my, my point I did with pole position earlier on the Vectrex. Mm-hmm. So it would it would um, redraw and refresh the whole screen all the time, but it yeah. would do it so fast that you only have a very slight flickering. Mm-hmm. So... Now, as a as a proof of concept here, I did a preserve, and this right here, because of the animations of all the different robots here, it literally takes up all the bandwidth here. But I wanted to see just how far I could take it. Oh. Anyway, so yeah, there you go. Yeah. Nice. Yeah. All right. So. so- so, um, where can people find that stuff, and what what do you need uh, the most for people helping you next? Well, that's just it. Um, for for people, first of all, I want people. I I the most. Um, I, I'd love people. I, I'd love people to start showing up for uh, for demonstration meets. Which I'll take. I'll, I'll actually take and use the. Uh, uh, you saw a link for the Facebook uh, for the Facebook group at the yep. first of our presentation here. I take and uh, I, I schedule uh, meets on a daily basis to do things not not just for things like playing AirFlight or playing a game of Avatar, but also doing programming workshops so I can show people how to write software for the system. Uh, and. Uh, so it would be cool if people, interested people to show up there, uh, to take and say, yeah, I want to take and do something. I have an idea. And then I go, okay, well, what do you need in order for us to do it? And, um, you know, uh, of course, you know, people helping right now, helping with terminal Im- implementations would be nice. Not needed, but, you know, it would be nice. Um, and, um, uh, once once things actually pick up a bit more, I think we'll actually start to see that we'll need things like uh, system staff and whatnot. But uh, yeah, uh, I need to. I, I would just uh, what I want most is interested people, people to take and bring their own interests into this project, and I will try to find a way to make it fit. Well, hopefully we we do our duty in promoting this thing. <laughs> yeah, we will well, put links super in the podcast description uh, where people can go and, and find it. Mm-hmm. I, I really am. I'm fascinated by this, this whole thing because even as a um, as a continuing as, as something that's not necessarily a snapshot of the past, but is a a continuously developed system. Um, one of the big issues that we see with a lot of a lot of um, networking stuff and, and, and online communities and whatnot for retro uh, computing people uh, like Q-Link and, and whatever else is that it's kind of stuck in a state of where it was when it was last around, yes. you know? Yes, and I'm right. trying so, to break free of that. I'm trying very hard to break free of that. Right, and, and the great thing with this is that as any user can become can get authoring abilities yes. and and if they want to see something in it if they want to add something to it they they can do that it there's yes. 
the development is still open and active and nothing is stopping anyone from from just making more stuff for it. Exactly. Uh, one interesting suggestion, for example, I want some by the, by the end of next year. I hope to have enough time. Uh, I would love to see a multiplayer mule on the system. Mm. Nice. And you said it's actually programmed in C. That means it will it will draw people that never learned assembler. That's the thing. Yeah, it's uh yeah the terminals themselves are written in very portable C. Very ridiculously portable C. I mean, just to kind of give you an idea of the turnaround here, my average turnaround from uh, the moment of copying the code over to getting something, getting the initial splash screen displayed on the terminal is typically about three, four hours from zero. Which is pretty impressive. Yeah, yeah it is. So it's real easy to port. Ridiculously easy to port. Wow. So we will definitely keep a look, um, um, yeah, on that and see how it de develops, and hope you can draw more people to it. It's in it's incredible. It deserves to be supported by more interested people, so that you are not the only developer anymore. Yes, I I I hope so. I'm, my thing is is I'm trying to get it out there. We'll see what happens. How many? What's your? What's the? Uh, how many users do you currently have that are active on it? As of right now, I am uh, I have approximately 360 people that have signed up since I went live, since I fully went live uh, in April. Okay, so that's not even a year. Yep. It's pretty impressive. I would that say. is. That's that's very impressive. That's because I'm constantly, literally, constantly posting stuff about it. <laughs> right. Well, that that is how I stumbled. Um, above it, so it worked. <laughs> yep, I'm, I'm glad. See, I'm, I'm, that's the whole thing. This is a public project. Every single part of it is public, and everything, everything that I do on it is public. So yeah, it's constant status updates. Hmm. And it's free. There's no more eight dollar an hour. Nope. <laughs> yeah, it's nice. There's, nice. It's, there's more, and there's more than enough space. It's kind of funny. I, all the space inside the system is pre-allocated, and this is this is the largest possible Plato system that's a, that's a possible without patching, and the whole thing, system system tools, so, the system software, all the content, everything, and all the extra space to put new stuff on there. Uh, whole thing, six point three gigabytes. Yeah, which is, which is <laughs> incredible. If yeah, you yeah. think that uh, nowadays a game has more than that, yes, right, right, yes. So yeah. you know, I've I've got I've got back you know, and and I back it up every single day. I've got snapshots. You know, I I can keep like a year and a half's worth of snapshots on the SSD before I have to take and pull them off. So nice. <laughs> well, thanks so much for sitting with us. For two hours, that's um, incredible. Uh, yeah, well, I'm glad you guys enjoyed it. Yeah, wow. thanks again for the rundown. It was it's, it's amazing. I love I love seeing this, and 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 it's just something something new that these machines can yes can just keep doing. You know the yes. I wasn't aware of it. Yes. <laughs> Before <laughs> I saw the Google Plus page. <laughs> <laughs> and, and 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 the thing is that that was that was drawing the attention to me. Number one was the flight simulator and the vector the vector graphics. 
Mm-hmm. I was like, okay, this looks like on an Apple II. Yes. <laughs> so um, that is what was what was drawing the attention to me, actually. The yes. games. It was the yes. games again. And that's yeah. And I understand. And I'm trying to take and make it so that we can make more interesting games. And you see, with the environment there, it doesn't take much to make interesting games. All the games that were you have to understand. All the games that were written on this system were written by kids. <laughs> the, the oldest people, the oldest people writing writing the games were grad students. I mean, good God, it's like. Uh, you know, these were things that they were like, well, well can I do this? And uh, the biggest thing to really understand about why Plato was the way it was, it all comes back to the founder of Plato, the guy who was its guiding light, Dr. Don Bisser. He was, by all accounts, the type of guy that would look at something that you did, that you did and say, gosh, that's neat keep doing it and uh and and more to the point when somebody would ask him a question what if we could do this his answer would invariably be well go try it <laughs> and when if he, if he saw something that was neat gosh that's neat i'm going to go demo this to everybody else and he would constantly and that was the culture and that's why all these crazy things were developed inside the system right Oh yeah. Well, so thanks a lot, and keep in touch, right? Of course. Yes, definitely. Thank you very much. We will see you on the Plato server. See you. Bye bye. Bye bye. So that was Thomas Cherry Holmes. Um, You can check out what he's doing over at irata.online. Link is right there. I'm pointing at it. I think. Oh, yeah. Um. There's also a Facebook group and, and there's a lot of other like kind of peripheral information and we will put links to all of this in the podcast description, whether you're watching it on our, our website or on YouTube or wherever else. Um, you know where to find us, so I'm not going to do all that again. <laughs> yes, but you could check out our YouTube homepage. Which Hopefully you are checking out our YouTube homepage <laughs> because if you're just listening to this podcast, you're missing a whole lot. Oh yeah! Oh, definitely. This is one of those podcasts where you have to watch the video version to understand the full potential of what he is presenta- uh, presenting. And, and again, I really am excited presenting. about everything he's doing. It's really, really cool. Oh. It has a lot of has a lot of potential. You know, again, I like to. I don't. I don't think of it so much as retro computing because. Like, if you still use it actively, if it's still a machine that is, you know, something that you're doing something with, you, you know, it, it, it's it's not retro if 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 it's still useful, you know? That's called vintage. It, well, vintage is, you know, age-related and all that, but I, I'm just saying, like, you know, it, it's... Someone like me, I don't, I don't really, I'm not really into like old games and reliving childhood and stuff. I'm into like creating or doing something. I'm into like. that too. I'm into, exactly. I'm right. into all of that. Right. So, so we're still using it as, as a tool. So it's not like we're retro computing. We're, we're, it's, it's just a machine, a, a tool that we're using to do something. And in that respect, something like, like Plato is excellent because it's still, it's still in development. It's something that multiple computer platforms can use 
uh, you know, and, and it's something that is, is open enough to where just your average user can go in and, and learn how to do stuff and add new features and add new things to it, you know? So there, there's a huge amount of potential for it, for and, and a lot of benefits going on and checking it out. Um, yeah. So again, links to everything in the podcast description, and uh, we'll uh, we'll see you next time. See you next time. Bye bye.